Let's read the text before us. We're going to continue with this topic of um, providence. And um, now that we're drawing close to the Christmas season, just around the corner, we're going to be looking at divine providence in sending a deliverer. So would you turn with me to the book of Judges, chapter 13? Judges is typically not a book that we look at during the Christmas season, but you'll see how it does um, fit. Judges 13, and we'll be looking at um, verses 1 to verse 7. We'll be reading other verses um, during the message itself, but right now we'll just read 1 to 7. Judges 13, 1 to 7. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord handed them over to the Philistines for 40 years. And there was a man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was infertile and had not given birth to any children. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, now you are infertile and have not given birth but you will conceive and give birth to a son. And now be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For behold, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he will begin to save Israel from the hands of the Philistines." And the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. And so I did not ask him where he came from, nor did he tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son. And now you shall not drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. May your word, O Lord, be precious to each one of us. Open our eyes to see and our ears to hear and our hearts to understand. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please be seated. I was speaking to someone this week who was rather um, despondent, very bright person. Um, This person follows the different... Um, events that are unfolding in the world today and with regards to um, critical race, regards to the uh, uh, wokeism, uh, white privilege, white guilt, the whole transgender agenda, the BL, the LGBTQ agenda and so forth. And um, she was telling me how disturbed she was, how she's not a, a believer, committed believer, but she was saying how greatly disturbed she was as she hears and sees things that are unfolding in the world. And she goes, Where, what's happening? And, uh, and th- what I, at that time, knowing how low she was, I just started to speak about the providence of God, how the Lord led me into this topic now, this topic brought great comfort to her. See, if we believe that God is sovereign, that God rules over the entire universe, and that God is the God of gods and the King of kings and the Lord of lords, but we do not understand providence, 
then it's very easy to become discouraged because we'll see God as detached and lofty, transcendent, above all else. And he's just there at a distance looking at everything unfolding and um, not intimately involved in the affairs of mankind. And that's why people look up to individuals like Elon Musk. Elon Musk is giving concrete answers to concrete problems. He's saying we can populate Mars. We can have a calling on Mars. And in fact, his dream is to die on Mars. In other words, when it's time for him to actually pass away, is to pass away on Mars. And he gives these concrete answers to questions that people have. Of course, it's all deception. It's, none of it is founded in Scripture. None of it is according to truth. But that's how lost um, we can be without the gospel. We'll start looking for hope where there is no hope. We'll start grasping at stars, uh, at straws rather, trying to get to the stars. When in actuality, the answer is right before us. The answer is in the scriptures, and it's in the Bible. And most people have given up on the Bible. And those of us who have started to believe in God's word, it's because God sovereignly, miraculously, did something in us to open our hearts to God's word. And now we believe in this message, the glorious message of the gospel. That's amazing. Um, I like to look at the birth of Christ um, through this lens of divine providence. In the past few weeks, we've been looking at how God is providential, that he's intimately involved in the lives of every human being. He's intimately involved in all of creation, and especially in those who belong to him. Romans 8 tells us that all things work for good to them that love God. All things, every detail. Imagine every detail in your life right now, the unpleasant ones. Think about those because your mind most likely is occupied with the unpleasant things. You're disturbed by them. You go to bed at night, you think about these things. They keep you awake. It could be financial, it could be relational, it could be about your children, you're worried about them, and these problems are weighing heavy on your heart. Do you know those problems are there because God so willed them to be there, especially if you're a child of God, that those problems are working in your favor? All things work for good to them that love God. That is providence. If we believe in providence, if we believe in this doctrine, we will look at that verse and rejoice. If we don't believe in providence, that verse makes no sense at all. Absolutely no sense. That verse not only throws light on God's sovereignty, that God rules over all, but that also on God's intimate involvement in our lives. And today we're going to be considering God's providence in sending a deliverer to save his people. In a way, we pick up where we left, left off last week. So the passage we just finished reading is found in the book of Judges. And Judges, as you know, follows Joshua. In Joshua, we see God's people under the leadership of Joshua conquering the land of Canaan, driving out the enemies, and bit by bit conquering. They made mistakes, but in general, they were faithful to God under Joshua's leadership. Moses is no longer around, and they obeyed, and they feared the Lord, and they, you see them conquering this vast territory, which they call Israel prior to Prior to that, it was called Canaan. 
the land of Canaan. Different tribes occupied, different kingdoms. They were all driven out, and Israel is now established. That's under Joshua. Then you read the book of Judges. Now, the book of Judges is the book where this burgeoning nation called Israel is now settling in. It's occupying the land. It's taking care of what God has given them. But as you read the first 12 chapters of Judges, you will find a very sad refrain. The very sad refrain is verse 1 of this chapter. Now the sons of Israel, again, did evil in the sight of the Lord. You'll read those words repeatedly in the first 12 chapters. And the Lord handed them over to the Philistines for 40 years. Sad, isn't it? It's this repeated refrain, this very sad refrain. We witness firsthand Israel's cycle of disobedience. And this cycle is made up of five phases, if you would. The first phase of this cycle is Israel is faithful to God. Short-lived faithfulness. Short-lived. But it's faithful. After that, you see unfaithfulness on Israel's behalf. They turn to other idols. They disobey God's word. They're not interested in his law. And they do their own thing. They're just acting wickedly, at times more wickedly than the nations around them. Third is enslavement. God allows the nations to do incursions, to invade, take them captive, uh, destroy their harvest, and whatever else, wreak havoc in the land. Sometimes it's uh, the Ammonites, sometimes it's the Moabites, uh, other times it's the Philistines, and so forth. The Philistines were the most fierce of all. Then you have remorse. God's people are remorseful, not repentant. Repentance is different from remorse. Uh, remorse is, I, I have, I'm suffering. I can't stand the situation. God, please get me out of this. Sorry for what I did. But there's no true heartfelt change there. Because repentance, genuine repentance, is a gift from God. We cannot muster up repentance. We will always be remorseful. We will regret our mistakes. Repentance is a 180. It is, I'm going in one direction, and all of a sudden I stop, because miraculously God reveals himself to, to me, and I know I do a 180, and I go in the opposite direction. That is a miracle. Repentance is a miracle. Most individuals become remorseful because the situation is dire. Pharaoh is a classic example of someone who is remorseful, but unrepentant. Saul, King Saul, who hunted David over and over, was remorseful but never repentant. That is a typical uh, reaction that humanity has. And Paul, writing, says these words, that human remorse or human sorrow just produces death. But godly sorrow, which is repentance, brings about life, change. There is a uh, reconciliation with God. There's life in that relationship. So for a while, God feels okay. Then the cycle repeats itself, and this happens throughout the book of Judges. You read the book of Judges, and you see a microcosm of what is happening in the world, right? There's uh, this constant defiance towards God. 
And as you read the book of Judges, and as you read this unchanging refrain, you become saddened. You say, my goodness, why do we have this? Why is this in Scripture? Why is God so patient with this nation? Remember that God is patient with us. As you read that, remember how God is patient with us. And then you come to chapter 13. This is the first verse of chapter 13 that we're just reading right now. And you come to the last judge. God raised up many judges who would deliver Israel from her enemies. There was Gideon, Jephthah, Deborah, Ehud, so forth. But here's one judge that God is going to raise up that's going to be different. And it tells us that for 40 years, God gave Israel over to the Philistines. Now, you'll recall that they were 40 years in the desert. And for 40 years in the desert, God said, you are a rebellious people, stiff-necked, and um, your hearts are hardened towards me. And they're still the same, even while occupying the land. So as punishment, God gives them over for 40 years to the Philistines. Now, who were the Philistines? You may have heard this word, and you think of an uncultured person, a brute. But they were not brutes in reality. Very advanced for their times. Uh, they were the first ones to work with iron and make iron weapons. They were the first ones to employ battle formations of war. They were the, uh, given to art and pottery and architecture. All quite advanced. So they were very advanced as a civilization. While they were building multi-story buildings, uh, the Israelites were taking care of sheep. So compared to the Israelites, far more advanced. And they had no problems taking over the nation of Israel. But besides being advanced, they were equally very depraved. So God gave them to a people that were depraved and had their own gods. And then with their idol worship of Dagon primarily, they built their whole civilization on piracy and conquest. They were evil and militarized in an evil way. Whenever they would take over or conquer a people, uh, they would um, um, mutilate their private parts and then impale them. This was before they actually would kill them. And they celebrated their conquest with binge drinking, celebrating their conquest in honor of their god, primarily Dagon. Advanced, very advanced, but wicked, very wicked. And so they represented the worst kind of enemies for Israel. It was only only when David became king that the Philistines were actually defeated and driven out. But until David came around, which is years later, the Philistines were always there to remind Israel that they were nothing. They were nothing. And that God, they depended on God. So they represented the worst enemy. They're, numerically, they were stronger, uh, economically, militarily, and uh, culturally, in every other way. So in short... God gave these nation, this nation in particular, Israel, over to the Philistines. And they mistreated them. For 40 years, they were enslaved. And they cried out to God, remorseful but unrepentant. God help us. God deliver us. We made a mistake. And the thing is, God knows the heart of every human being. God knows the heart of his people. And he knows they're not truly repentant. But yet, God does something totally different. Look what he does in verse 2. And there was a man of Zorah, of the family of the Dinites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was infertile and had not given birth to any children. 
And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, now you are infertile. You've not given birth, but you will conceive and give birth to a son. So what we have here is an unexpected appearance, a heavenly appearance. And notice that between verse 1 and verse 2, there's no repentance. The people of God did not actually repent. They're unfaithful. God had given them over to the Philistines. And what happens in verse 2? God mercifully, mercifully sends his servant to this woman who's nameless. That's God's doing. Were they repentant? No. Did they deserve this appearance? No. Did they deserve a deliverer? No. God did this. So there's no repentance. The punishment is managed by God and the deliverance is executed by God. And that's what happens in our lives. That's exactly what happens. When we sense that there is the hand of God against us and things are not going well, that's God moving in our lives to bring us to repentance. But when something happens that is good, that's God equally moving in our lives so that we do repent and acknowledge his goodness in our lives. Herein lies the difference between all the other judges and this deliverer, this new judge, this person who's going to come. What is the major difference? The other ones were all chosen from the Hebrew society. Like I said, Ehud or Jephthah or Deborah or Gideon. They were all men and women, or in one case only women, that were living in Israel. This one has yet to be born. That's why it's different. It's completely different. God here is starting from scratch. The announcement of a deliverer is given to this woman who is barren, most likely nearing old age. And in those days, being barren, of course, was mortifying. Everyone looked down on you, and they saw you as someone who was cursed as a woman because society was agrarian. And your farm, your home depended on children. If you had no children, you had no employees, unless you were very wealthy, of course, and you had servants, right? And then children took care of you, because this was a time before pension plans, uh, children took care of you in your old age. So children were a necessity. That's why sometimes you read that they had more than one wife because the first one may not have had enough children, so they had to marry a second wife to get enough children to take care of their farm. That's the case of Elkanah, the uh, father of Samuel. And so this woman appears out of the blue and this heavenly visitation takes place in her life we're not given her name. It's strange because there's a whole bunch of details that are given to us regarding this family. We know the, the father's name. His name is Manoah. We know that they're from Dan, a tribe of Israel, a northern tribe. We know that they, uh, they are, uh, uh, the, the, the family itself was uh, from Zorah, a man of Zorah, which is a, a smaller clan in uh, the tribe of Dan. So we know all these details, but the woman's name doesn't appear. That was un intentional, omitted by, uh, for a reason, for, by, by, on purpose, by the writer himself. Why? Because his, all of this story, by the way, every story in the Old Testament like this always points to Christ. Always points to Christ. Every single thing. And this we need to remember. That's when we start studying and delving into and seeing these nuggets. Now, the people of Israel here are without hope. 
This woman is an insignificant, insignificant person. That's why there's no name mentioned. And God acts mercifully towards them. And in his providence, God does not take a righteous person at all. Someone that doesn't take a deserving person. Doesn't take someone that's, uh, that has status, that has some significance in society. An insignificant person, Dan, an insignificant tribe. And chooses this woman with no name and appears. There. Just like the angels appeared to the shepherds when Jesus was born. Here this and, and heavenly visitation happens with this insignificant person. And we see that it is God who seeks the lost, the undeserving, and reveals his mercy towards them. This is what we find in these three verses, if you would, uh, that God is the one who is merciful. We've read this verse, or these two verses rather, in the past few weeks a few times, but it deserves that we read them again. It's Moses who speaks to God's people just prior to his death and reminds them of this. The Lord did not make you his beloved, nor choose you because you were greater in number than any of the peoples, since you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you, and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. So why does God act mercifully? Why does God reveal himself to the unworthy, to the unrighteous, to the insignificant, not the ones who deserve it? Why? Because he is the one who takes the move. He makes the, he makes the, uh, the, takes the step towards the undeserving so that they see themselves as sinners, before a holy God who is merciful towards them. So now that we saw the unchanging refrain and the unexpected appearance, let's look at the unusual instructions this woman receives. Verse 4 and verse 5 we read, And now be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For behold, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. So when the angel of the Lord appeared to this woman, I know it was a wife, let's call her that, he starts by giving her dietary restrictions. Uh, that is odd. Usually a, a doctor says this to a wife when she finds out she's pregnant, right? Stay away from the alcohol, watch your diet. You know why? Because you're, that's the, the role of a doctor. Why would the um, visit from heaven actually say this to this woman. Stay away from alcoholic beverages and stay away from unclean meat. Why? If she was a God-fearing Israelite, she would not be eating unclean meat, would she? Think about it. I mean, I don't go to someone who's, who's not a drinker and say, hey, by the way, stay away from the booze. <laughs> There's no need. So why is she being told Stay away from unclean meat. Now, we know some unclean meat. Pork is considered unclean, but it's not only pork, it's dog, cats, a whole bunch of animals are unclean, a whole bunch of birds, a whole bunch of fish. But she was eating unclean meat. That means she was not a faithful follower of the Torah, of the law of God. So why would the Lord send an, an, an angelic visitation to this woman? She's most undeserving. She is not a faithful follower of the Lord. Again, God is merciful. 
Why did the Lord appear to us? Why did he speak to us? Not because we deserve it, but because we're undeserving. We're unworthy of such grace. And God speaks to her and says these words. And not only the dietary restriction regarding unclean meat, but then alcoholic beverages. Is drinking wine a sin? No, it's not a sin. Many men of God drink wine. Even the Lord himself drank wine with the disciples. But why then is she not allowed to drink wine? Because the child would have a Nazarite vow on his head for the rest of his life. The Nazarite vow, if you look in Numbers chapter 6, we don't have the time to do it, you'll notice three main traits or requirements, let's say, for the Nazarite vow. First, no haircut. So you would notice someone from his untrimmed and uncut hair that the Nazarite vow was taken by that individual. So it was a vow between him and God and done in the presence of a priest where he would say, I enter now into a vow with God, a Nazarite vow. And he would not let his hair be trimmed or cut. Secondly, no alcoholic beverage of any kind. In fact, not even eating, eating grapes. Third, no touching of dead carcasses, uh, dead bodies or carcasses, human or animal. So these are the three main requirements. So uh, most people would uh, take this kind of vow for a short period to separate themselves for the purpose of seeking God for a special situation. So uh, you will, for example, you would take this vow and say, Lord, I'm going to dedicate myself to prayer. I'm going to watch my tongue. I'm going to seek your face because there's things going on in my life. I'm going to take the Nazarite vow. And so it was a short duration only vow. But there are individuals who had a lifetime Nazarite vow. Samson is one of them. Samuel is another. And if you read his story, you'll understand the Nazarite vow was on his head. And John the Baptist was another. All the others would take short duration type of Nazarite vow. And so that's why she is told, do not drink wine. Not because drinking wine is a sin, but because this child would be special, would be separate for the Lord. Samson was going to be a gift from God for his people. So in this unusual visitation, we see God providentially appearing to an unworthy woman who was eating unclean meat and therefore breaking the law, disobeying God, and God mercifully reveals himself to her, mercifully tells her she will have a child, and mercifully provides this child as a deliverer for a nation that is in rebellion. Samson's story is meant to point us to an even greater truth, which is that God is merciful, and when he sends a deliverer, he does it not because we are asking for one, but because he is merciful towards us. Notice verse 5. Powerful verse. He shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Begin. In the first 12 chapters of Judges, many were raised by God to deliver Israel. Why does it say he shall begin? Because his story is different than the rest of the Judges. And then... Why did it say begin? Did he ever finish 
what God had entrusted him. No. Because if you read from Judges 14 to the end, you will see how morally corrupt Israel had begun, had become rather. They had broken every law under the book. Levites were joining themselves to concubines. Rape was common. It was unsafe to be in Israel. Idol worship was rampant. Read from 14 to the end and you will be depressed unless you have an understanding of God's providence and God's sovereignty. So Samson begins, but who finishes the task? He can only begin. And it's a very weak beginning. Who finishes it? Jesus Christ, the Savior. So we've seen the unchanging refrain. We've seen the unexpected appearance, the unusual instructions given to this woman who wasn't deserving. Now let's look at the uncommon face of this woman. We didn't read these verses, but let's read them together. Always in chapter 13, from verse 21 to verse 24, we read, Now the angel of the Lord did not appear to Manoah or his wife again. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. So Manoah now is part of that experience because the visitation happens with him in the picture. And so Manoah said to his wife, and notice his words, We will certainly die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands. Nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have led us here things like this at this time. So the woman gave birth to a son, named him Samson, and the child grew up, and the Lord blessed him. And so far we have a picture of a woman that eats unclean meat, perhaps drinks a little too much, maybe because she's depressed. She knows she's uh, not a mother. Uh, she knows that she's failed her husband. She's failed as a woman in society because in those days, as I said, they would look down upon you if you didn't have a child. And so she's imagining her old age, childless, and as a, maybe her husband is angry and upset because she's not bringing forth a child like every other woman. And so she's eating unclean meat. She's discouraged. And God appears to discouraged woman. And what does she do? She believes. <laughs> she believes. She says, I'm ready to receive this revelation. I believe what God has just told me. I'm going to obey him. I'm going to be a mother. I'm going to raise this child. I'm going to stay away from the booze. I'm going to stay away from the unclean meat. I'm going to eat everything kosher. And I'm going to follow the Lord. And in the Bible, there are only a few women that responded this way to this kind of revelation. Not even Sarah. Abraham's wife responds this way. When the Lord says to Abraham, your wife Sarah is going to have a child, she's in the tent preparing something or washing dishes or whatever else she was doing, we don't know. And while she's in the tent, she overhears the conversation. And she says, yeah, sure. And she starts laughing. And by the way, the name Isaac means laughter. And God says to Abraham, why is your wife laughing? And she's afraid at that point. At the point she realizes, he, I, I'm uncovered. I deserve judgment. She goes, no, no, I didn't laugh. Oh, yes, you did. It's an interesting conversation that happens between God and Abraham at that moment regarding Sarah's wife. So not even Sarah, the woman of faith, had the response of Manoah's wife. Manoah's wife reminds us of another woman who had the same kind of response. Mary, a teenage girl of Nazareth, who when the Lord appears to her, or the angel appears to her, Gabriel, appears to her and tells her 
of her impossible role as a mother of a child. What does she say? Well, it, uh, we are told in Luke, verse 138, be it unto me according to your word. In other words, I accept it. This is your will. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to have a husband uh, right now. I'm not going to have my wedding, my marriage celebration before having a child. I will have a child first. That's, that's, that's putting the cart before the horse. Who would say yes to a cart before the horse? No one would say that. Everyone would say, I don't want that. I want to get married. I want my wedding dress. I want the banquet. Then I want the child. That's how the song goes. First comes marriage, then the baby carriage. Right? We, we don't invert that. But the angel says, it's inverted. You're not going to get married. There is no marriage banquet. Everything is short-circuited for you. You're 15 years old at most. Some say even 14. She was a teenager because that's when they married quite young. You're going to have a baby. That's the good news. And she says, okay, I'm here. Ready to do your will. That's the kind of response Manoah's wife has. Manoah's wife eagerly accepts. Whereas the husband says, we're going to die. He appeared to us to kill us. He appeared to make, make an end of us. And Manoah's wife says, no, no, no. He didn't appear to kill us. He appeared to bless us. This is the response that pleases God. The response that says, I believe what you've promised. I believe in what, you've, what you're saying. And I embrace it. You see, there are two kinds of response. We either become religious towards him and religion without faith, right? Religion that doesn't please God, which is a religion without faith, is rebellion. Because it's saying, I'm going to approach you on my terms. I'm going to be doing this and this, and this should make God happy. That's religion. And there are many religions today. But only faith pleases God. Faith only is accepted by God. We've seen this throughout Scripture, and that's what we see here in Manoah's wife. We see a faith that bounces up from her heart into God's presence. It says, I believe, I accept, I surrender. That's what we see in Mary, and that's what we see in Manoah's wife. It's the kind of response that God is looking for when we hear the gospel. The gospel is the most nonsensical thing on the face of the earth. That a righteous God who should be punishing us and should be expressing his wrath towards sinful creatures who have broken his laws re repeatedly are now forgiven because of the cross. If they believe in what God has done in sending his son to take and absorb the wrath that we deserve, you are saved. You are delivered. That makes no sense. And yet when you believe in that, that kind of faith pleases God. It's the faith that he receives with gladness and there's joy in heaven because of it. But when we reject belief and we come and respond by being religious, by bringing our counter offer, which is a negotiation, oh God, if you take care of my family, I, I promise I'll go to church. Lord, if you take care uh, of my business, I promise I'm going to give you a portion to the poor and to the church and, and whatever else. And we start negotiating with God. Lord, if you do this in my life, that's religion. And God has no place for religion. 
Religion is the thing of Cain. Faith is the thing of Abel. We're either like Abel or we're like Cain. We're either religious and rebellious or we believe and surrender. And what you see in Manoah's wife is this belief. Her husband did not have that understanding. He thought, okay, what do we do here? He's going to kill us. Right? And he wanted to transact. And Manoah's wife said, no, no, no. He hasn't come to kill us. He has come to bless us. We deserve death. We deserve judgment. We've disobeyed him. We've done our own thing. But God is merciful and is sending to us a deliverer. And that's the message of the gospel. So let's trace divine providence in this unusual story of Samson's birth. First, we see that God takes initiative towards a rebellious and unrepentant people. They are not calling out to him, but God moves in mercy because he knows they will never repent. They will never repent. Secondly, God chooses an obscure and spiritually unhealthy woman to be the mother of this deliverer. Someone who is scorned. Someone who is put aside. And how is, what is her response? I will obey. I yield. I will become that vessel you want me to be. Very much like Mary. God sets aside a child to be born that would be, that would be different from the rest of the judges, the rest of the deliverers in the first 12 chapters of Judges. And this birth is to speak to the generations of Jews and Israelites of the future. Because every time they read this story, they realize this child is different from the rest. This deliverer is different from the rest. Uh, recently, I'm not sure how many years ago, the movie came out on Samson. And in this movie, I didn't see the movie. I saw clips of it. He's a massive man with a muscular build. And he's just, uh, he's able to do incredible feats. That's not Samson of scriptures. If Samson would have been that muscular and that well-built, everybody would have figured out, well, this guy is, you know, he's eating his Wheaties and he's very much into whey and his protein shakes are there. He's eating, he's swallowing 12 eggs every morning. He does his exercise. He goes on the treadmill and he's strong. Now we've figured it out. That's not Samson at all. Samson was a common man. There was nothing unusual about him. He's the picture of Christ, who too was a common man. He was God in the flesh, but you couldn't tell that he was God in the flesh. From his appearance, there was nothing desirable about him, says Isaiah. There was nothing that stood out that says, wow, he is unusual. Not even his own siblings were able to recognize the unusual giftedness of Jesus Christ. They looked at him and said, there's nothing different about him. Think about that. And that was Samson. Samson was, Samson was not unusually muscular. He wasn't at the gym doing his biceps and triceps and everything else. Nothing. No weights or anything. Samson was a regular man. That's why they kept saying, what is the key to your strength? Why do you have such unusual strength? They knew there was something divine when Samson moved. And lastly, God would save his people from their enemies using Samson. Just like God would save his people from her enemies using Jesus Christ. For that's what Simeon says. He will save 
his people from their sins, our greatest enemies. So if you read the life of Samson, it's natural to be drawn to his glaring blunders. His, you know, the fact that he had dalliances with a prostitute and then Delilah. The fact that he married a Philistine who was then later killed. These all women in his life were all, besides his mother, were all Philistines. You know, and you see these blunders, and you see his rage, his impulsiveness, the fact that he loved riddles instead of wisdom, the fact that he feared no one when he should have really feared the Lord, the fact that he took his vows so lightly. And so we look at all his weaknesses and we say, here's someone that God set apart, God put him into service for his people, and yet we see these blunders. How could he be a picture of Christ? Well, his birth is a picture of Christ. His mother's response is a picture of Mary. And the fact that he is a picture of Christ is the fact that he begins to deliver his people. And then, most importantly, it's what he did at the end of his days. Now, we think of Samson, and we are reminded that he was blinded by the Philistines after Delilah finds out the secret of his strength. By the way, the strength was not in his hair. It was the fact that he kept a vow. And when he, the vow was broken the strength is gone, right? And so when Delilah finds out what the secret of the strength is, which is this vow that he had with God, his hair is cut, and we find out that the uh, Philistines jump on him and pluck his eyes out. And and then they use him um, in a certain way, by the way. Now this is, uh, he's he's blinded and he's just used to mate uh, all the women that they had so that another Samson would come out that would be like Samson. Of course, that was foolish, and uh, this is what Jewish historians say, and it could very well be because slaves were used to mate according to what the owner of the slave would determine. But at the end of his days, you'll remember that he was brought into this large amphitheater. That's where all the Philistines were, the leaders, all the Philistines, there were thousands, and they had brought him out to make fun of him and to mock the God of Israel and the Israelites themselves. And you'll remember that Samson prays one more time. He's blind by this time. He has no supernatural strength. He's just an ordinary man. And he calls out to God for one more time and says, Lord, vindicate me. This one more time. And God miraculously gives him strength for that one more time. He pulls down the pillars. And it says that in his death, he killed more Philistines than he did throughout his life. So here's Samson over and over defeating Philistines and freeing the people of Israel from this powerful enemy that's advanced and cruel. But in his death, he killed more than he did throughout his life. And that's a picture of who? Of Christ. For Christ himself, in his death, did something that he, no one else had ever done. Though he, in his life, drove out demons and healed the sick and raised the dead... Therefore, defeating in these areas, in the areas of illness, and the areas of death, he brought miracle after miracle, right? But then in his crucifixion, when Jesus was on that cross, he defeated completely. For it says, the enemy, uh, he defeated the enemy completely. For it says in 1 John 3, 8, the Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. It completely destroyed In Colossians 2.15, when Jesus had disarmed the rulers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, having triumphed over them through him. 
So Christ, through the cross, through his death, brought the greatest uh, slaughter of the power of the uh, forces of darkness and crushed the serpent's head so that now we receive the benefits of that death. What are the benefits? Forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, sonship, we can call him Abba. We are now part of the kingdom of God. We have a destiny. We're going to be with him for eternity. And on and on it goes. Because our arch enemy, not some, some hidden enemy that we don't understand, an enemy that we clearly know to be real, because evil is real in the, in the world, and he's the author of evil, he was crushed at the cross. And then Paul tells us in Romans that that victory will become fully ours when God will crush Satan under our feet as the church. So when Christ died on the cross, the glorious benefits that we never had before become ours the moment we say, I believe in the gospel. I believe that you died for me. I deserve judgment. I'm like Manoah's wife who is depressed and discouraged because things are not going my way. And I don't see the bigger picture. I don't see beyond my nose. But now that I understand the gospel, now that you opened my mind, now that you've penetrated my heart, now that you've pierced my hearing and you've opened my eyes, I see I deserve judgment and you are merciful towards me. You give me grace and you give me such benefits all because of the cross. You see, in his divine providence, God defeated a greater enemy than the Philistines. Yes, they were advanced and they were cruel. But our enemy, Satan, was the one who kept us blind, impoverished, and fearing not God, but the future. Because we think the future is not in our favor. So we had everything upside down. We swallowed lies and did not understand the truth. But once we understand that God defeated our greatest enemy, once we understand that, we will rejoice in spite of of the circumstances that we are facing, in spite of the situation that we are right now, that we find ourselves in. He defeated him. He made a public display of them at the cross. And now in his divine providence, he affords us grace. He says, come to me, all you that are thirsty, and I will give you to drink. That's Jesus saying that. All you got to do is say, I believe. I don't come with my terms. I come under your terms. I surrender and I believe in the gospel. Do you do that today? Next week, there will be baptism. And uh, you'll hear testimonies of individuals who did not believe in the gospel and now believe in the gospel. Were religious, some. For the most part, they weren't. But now they've chosen not to be religious, but to be obedient to the Lord. How is that possible? It's called the new birth. And the new birth is a miracle that God gives to every one of his children who will simply believe in the gospel. And that faith to believe comes from him anyhow. But it's an amazing gift. When you receive that gift of new birth, you become a new person. That doesn't mean you'll never sin. It doesn't mean you'll never fail. It doesn't mean you'll never doubt. It doesn't mean you'll never struggle with temptation. It doesn't mean that. It means that you have new desires, a new orientation, You'll have a new life, a new name, a new creation. You have a new destiny. You have a new father before he 
He was your enemy because anyone who doesn't believe is under the wrath of God. Now you are under his providential care. He takes care of his own. And every temptation that comes your way and every trial that comes knocking at your door and every path that you are walking down, all of it is marked by God's presence. And he takes care of those. And those he saves, he saves to the uttermost and to the very end. And if today you don't know him, the Lord is speaking to you, open your heart to him. Say yes like Manoah's wife. Not because you're deserving, not because you're a good person, not because you're without sin. He knows the depths of our hearts and the thoughts that race through our minds. He loves sinners and changes them into saints. He takes the unrighteous and makes them holy. That's God's doing. He did it with many people who were undeserving. He reveals himself from, from the lowliest people to the ones who are, who are banished and insignificant, and he makes them somebody in the kingdom of God. He doesn't make, take you because you are important in this earth, because you count in the eyes of others, because you're, you count in your own eyes. No, it's because God wills to save you. Open your heart to him today. Receive him as Savior. Make him Lord right now. Say yes like Manoah's wife. So that birth becomes more than a mere celebration at Christmas time. That birth has meaning now because you're a child of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story that is more than a story. Instructions from the Old Testament are for our benefit. They are an example so that we can receive instructions as Paul reminds us. And I pray that the story of Samson would be more than simply a story of a man who did um, incredible feats, that it would be a story that points us to Christ, the Savior of the world, who indeed saves us from our arch enemy, who saves us from our sins and saves us from the wrath of God that we rightfully deserve. And as we're about to break bread together and remember the cross, I pray that your word would find place in every heart, that there would be no unrepentant heart, there would be no hardened hearts, there would be no unbelieving hearts, but there would be only open hearts to your word, ready to receive that which you have for us today. Pray for those who are right now being sorely tried, that they would understand your providence and they would see that you are at work in their life, in the, in the everyday affairs of their life. Nothing escapes your attention. What a wonderful and merciful God you are. We bless you, we praise you. And we ask all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.